I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And the past is such a relief. I mean, there has been no worse time to be alive than right now. You know, a lot of people would probably make arguments about that. Name one worse time. Times of war? Like World War Two. Oh, yeah. World War What? You, pro- you probably got me there. I mean, maybe I would go World War One because you also had the Spanish flu at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to go with that might have been a worse time. Yeah. I'm going to argue for the other one because that would make this a useful and proper segue to today's topic. I don't like those. You know that. <laughs> I try so hard. I try so I, – I lay down – I pave the road. I plant shrubs along the side of the road. You do not walk down the road. I walk on top of the shrubs. I love you. I kick them. Kick that shrub to the curb. So what about World War II as the topic <laughs> that I – please, please save me. So today I'm taking one of the show suggestions we got many Ooh. moons ago. See, we read them. One fine cat suggested that I look into World War II and fashion, uh-huh. uh, kind of creating, I guess, a series off of my tuberculosis and fashion. One of our very first episodes. I really like, liked that episode. Single digits. Yeah. It yeah. Was, it was a long time ago. And I guess a disclaimer, World War II has a large amount of subjects attached to it. It was worldwide, for one. Uh Uh-huh. It it was a lot. So we're definitely not going to cover everywhere and every place in this episode. Full mobilization of of, uh, every industrialized state, along with their many colonial holdings. Uh, Maybe there'll be a part two one day in like three years. (laughs) That's how this goes, apparently. So we're going to start with talking about one of the main things that influenced fashion, and that is rationing. Mm -hmm. So from the start of World War II, Britain, for example, had immediately begun gas rationing. Mm -hmm. And then by January 1940, they were rationing food, and items that were not included in the rationing saw huge price surges. And by included in the ration, that means, like, you are entitled to X number of things for your family. For a period of time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So usually for food, you had like coupons for categorial things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Butter, we, eggs, meat. We, we think of rations as a limit. On, on the other side of the coin, it's a guarantee. Yes, you can get this much. <laughs> there's a maximum, but there's also a minimum. Yes. And, and I think that's an aspect of the word that's not included with how we use it these days. So yeah, things that weren't included had price surges. We're taking losses and like this isn't selling and prices are high and people aren't buying it. So we're just going to make more, which means like it's going to be even harder to find and prices are going to go up even more. Yeah. It's a whole bag problem. Make less, you mean? Yes. We're going to make less. Prices will go up on what exists. Right. Even more. It's a cycle. Mm -hmm. On January 1st, 1941, rationing started on cloth and clothing. Furniture would be included later on. Mm -hmm. Or in Britain. So when it came to clothes rationing, Mm -hmm. um, people were given coupon booklets. Mm -hmm. Like an adult was allotted 66 coupons a year, which would later be dropped to 36. And the A-ticket rides, you didn't really need a coupon for, but the E-tickets. That's not how it works. (laughs) Um, So basically the coupons could be used for anything. Mm -hmm. 
clothing wise. It's just you got to decide how you use them. Right. They were color categorized or not color categorized. They were color divided. So like the government would say you could use your orange tickets starting now Mm. and you could use all of your orange tickets or you could not use them and they would roll over, but you couldn't use your green or your brown tickets during that period. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You would be able to use them later. And that was to make sure people just didn't go spend them all at once mm-hmm. and basically take away everything that there was. Right. Space it out. Th- there is a, a strong element of, uh, about like caring for your community in rationing. Not, not just, you know, uh, production is, is down or it's all going off to, to the boys uh, on the front. It's also, you, you got to take care of, of the Smiths and the Joneses down the road. Don't buy all the toilet paper. <laughs> If you don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Save toilet paper for your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Hot tip, there's toilet paper down the street at our grocery store. <laughs> it has returned. <laughs> it has returned. I've never seen so much of it in a store in the past two months. <laughs> but with clothes rationing, you still needed money. Right. So you, you had to have the set amount of coupons for that item. Mm-hmm. Like jackets were all the same amount of coupons. All... Pants were the same. All handkerchiefs required the same amount of coupons. But the cost for the item that you paid could be different. So someone who was more well off could afford a more luxury coat Mm -hmm. and pay more and it would last longer and be higher quality. And someone who didn't have money, you know, have as much would have to pay the same amount of coupons. But since they couldn't afford it, they'd pay less for something not as high quality. They, they'd get the working man's coat. Yeah. Yeah. So there was still, like, inequality in what you could get. Mm-hmm. So what then came out of that was an introduction of something called utility clothing. Mm. Um, which was basically good quality clothing at affordable prices that were made efficiently into government regulations. Uh-huh. Yes. So to not only conserve time needed to make it, but the materials and the factory space. Right, So right. you could shift production to other things. Mm-hmm. Uniforms, parachutes. Missiles. Yeah. You know. That would require a very different factory, though. <laughs> you can adjust. <laughs> There's scuba diving places making face masks right now. Like, mm-hmm. Sure, why not? You know. This was not the first time that the uh, British government experimented with government-controlled clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually happened during World War I, um, when they tried to introduce what they called standard clothing in 1918. And it was meant to offer standard items in standard patterns at a fixed price. Mm-hmm. But the war ended a few months later, and no one cared because <laughs> suddenly imports were coming back and they're like, mm, no, yeah, we yeah. don't all want to look the same. We're good. The idea of a citizen's uniform isn't really going to take root outside of wartime. Yeah. Okay. They're just doing it again. How is it going to take on this time? Mm-hmm. Well, they had a plan. <laughs> they had a plan. Was the plan marketing? Yes. <laughs> it's always marketing. Always. So uh, in 1942, the Board of Trade invited the Incorporated Society of London Fashion Designers to <laughs> come together and design 34 utility clothing garments mm-hmm. that would be suitable for mass manufacturing, 
that got covered in the press. They had a fashion show about it, like <laughs> saying, "Like, hey, you can still be stylish. Yeah, this fits regulations." Mm-hmm. Um, and they called it the um, couture scheme. <laughs> That's what it's referred to, uh, and it it worked. Mm-hmm. And part of it's also though the fact that they what they designed were things that could be mixed and matched and mm-hmm. um the you know pieces they designed were not just like the only things available there mm-hmm. were many other things available many other designs but it got people excited right because oh so and so designed it mm-hmm. oh i can i can get that thing so utility clothing had a set of rules dresses could not have more than two pockets well, let's not get ridiculous. Right. How many hands do you have? Since when do dresses even need pockets? <laughs> we could learn something from this. Um, but yeah, so no more than two pockets, um, no more than five buttons, and all the buttons had to be functional. They could not be decorative. Thank the Lord. You, you are loving this. Yes. You are I... loving this. Um, there could not be more than six seams in a skirt. Uh, and there were restrictions on not only the type of material, but, like, the amount of stitching that could be included in one type of garment, also the amount of, like, pleating and the types of pleats. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, like, for a dress. Everything had a set of rules mm-hmm. about what you could or couldn't do. I mean, you, you put too many seams in uh, an, an unusual pleat, then you're going to have to retool your, your dang old factory. Well, and also it's that, um, you know, some of that stuff, it, by putting limitations, you are, it's not going to need as many supplies. Yeah. So, you're, like, you're, you're going to use less fabric. You're going to use less thread. It's going to take less time. very explicitly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, everything had to really be functional. Mm-hmm. And we weren't just decorating to decorate. <laughs> so, no fake buttons. No fake pockets. Oh, it's a dream come true. <laughs> Another thing uh, that led to utility clothing being popular um, <laughs> were changes to taxes that happened. Things that weren't were essential were tax-free, and things uh-huh. that weren't essential had heavier taxes. Utility clothing was essential, mm-hmm. but other types of clothing that did not follow the utility rules were taxed. The, the button surcharge. Yeah. There was utility clothing for... Women, men, children, all ages. Mm -hmm. The way it affected men and their fashion was not much. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, because the men are in charge. Your your clothing hasn't changed in like 200 years. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit You guys wear pants and shirts and jackets. A little fiddling around the edges, basically. Yeah, Uh, there's not not a lot there. Um, I mean, look at how clothing changed. From 1900 to 1940. Mm-hmm. It's extreme. The invention of the boxer brief. Yeah. The biggest revolution in men's clothing <laughs> of the 20th century. Um, but some of the things that uh, men, I guess, experienced um, was, <laughs> uh, you know, regulations like you couldn't have a double-breasted suit. It mm-hmm. had to be single-breasted because that used less fabric. Um Socks, socks were shir- shortened. <laughs> they like couldn't be over a sor- certain length. Mm-hmm. Just little things like that. Well, you know how ladies go wild for for an especially long sock. Oh yeah, we got to keep that sort of business down. Yeah, 
keep keep it nice and short so I can see your calf. Yes, the the least attractive thing <laughs> is a short sock to to show off those calves. Women's clothing, however, was much more affected. Uh, one of the big things was the length of skirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the 1930s, skirts fell mid-calf. That used more fabric. So in the 40s, skirts went to the knee. They invented cheerleaders in the 40s? Cheerleaders? We're talking about pleated knee-length skirts. That says cheerleaders to me. No, those are like mid-thigh. <laughs> Nowadays. Some other aspects were like jackets and shirts and everything being very square shouldered. Mm-hmm. Shoulder pads were a thing, which I don't really get because I'm like, that's unnecessary fabric usage. <laughs> but that was okay. That was a thing. Mm-hmm. Suits were also like very in because you could like pull the pieces apart and make more wardrobe. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember what not to wear. You should always be pulling something off the rack and thinking about three things already in your closet it can go with. Okay, I watched a lot of that show, but I honestly, like, hated so much of it. (laughs) So much of it was just like, okay, now everyone looks exactly the same. (laughs) You look like Stacy and or Clinton. I don't want to buy random pairs of dress pants for no reason, please. Dress pants, certain types of jeans, let's put you in a blazer. Now you're all, look at you. Chunky accessories, big prints. Oh, I mean, part of that was the time period of the show, too. <laughs> but, so in addition to uh, utility clothing, mm-hmm. there was also a push for make, do, and mend. Uh, yeah, Lots yeah, yeah. Campaigns um, and materials put out encouraging people to do that which is kind of weird because like people were already doing that they just came out of the great depression like people (laughs) know how to do that but let's do it more yeah yeah yeah. let's let's keep it up folks so uh in 1941 british appealed to the u.s to conserve food uh so they could provide more going to those that were fighting Mm -hmm. um and after pearl harbor a rationing system was established in the u.s Mm mm-hmm Clothing guidelines that came were pretty similar mm-hmm. um, with, you know, what was allowed and wasn't allowed. But there's differences, too. So, like, in right. both places, like, women's shoes, they, you couldn't have heels over a s- certain height. Because we don't want the, the women rising above their station. We got to keep them down physically. used excess material. Okay, sure, fine. Um, over in England, they could have, like, a two-inch heel. Ooh. Over here, you could only get, like, a one-inch. <laughs> difference a a lot of other things to do with how clothing was being rationed and what you could get had to do with the fabrics and the materials right yeah um wool was needed for the military so it was pretty much not available uh fabric designers uh did create new wool blends that used Mm -hmm. like recycled wool and rayon um rayon was considered a new fabric it was basically developed in the 30s the space age material of the future um yeah and they really liked it everything (laughs) was rayon (laughs) what can we make out of rayon let's do it and it was like the go-to fabric for especially women's clothing uh often in really bright bold patterns and colors Mm -hmm. which you don't really know because the photos were (laughs) black black and white white. (laughs) but when you see like you know, vintage clothing that still exists from the 40s. Right. It's in your face. <laughs> Primary colors and contrasting colors. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yeah. 
it's a lot to unpackage in those clothes. <laughs> so with the lack of wool for winter clothing, a lot of like corduroy and velveteen was used mm-hmm. in place because the army don't need that. <laughs> um, Imagine like a bunch of infantry trying to sneak around at night, and you just hear whoop whoop corduroy. That's why they couldn't use it is because it was too noisy. <laughs> that's that's um a test for the military on any type of fabric is how noisy is it? Cannot have windbreakers. <laughs> swish, swish, swish. <laughs> They'll never storm that pillbox like that. Yeah. And then there were other fabrics that, you know, the military didn't use, um, like jersey and gingham and calico and like Various other, like, cotton fibers, Mm -hmm. just in prints and materials they don't need. Yeah, you don't see a lot of soldiers in jeans, so that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So those also grew in popularity, um, especially here in the U.S. Cotton was a big fashion Mm -hmm. fabric, I guess. (laughs) Another thing was in the U.S., uh, Japanese silk was banned. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, women's stockings used to be made out of silk. But prior to the 40s, they'd actually transitioned to using nylon. Mm -hmm. But then nylon was needed by the military. So uh, there really wasn't a replacement. Um, So this is where uh, I think it's a pretty common story. People know of women like covering their legs in makeup Mm -hmm. and and drawing a a line down the back to be the seam of their nylons, (laughs) which is just messy. (laughs) I want to know why they didn't make them out of rayon. It couldn't come in a, like, skin tone color. It could only come in bright green or red. Imagine the feel of rayon stockings. How hot it would Uh, be. Rayon doesn't, like, breathe. Um, Be a lot of women down to party just so they can take them off. Yeah. Uh, And other things were affected, like metal zippers. Metal was needed, so zippers stopped being included in a lot of things. Instead, you were being replaced with buttons, but you could only have so many buttons. <laughs> and then on top of that, uh, women's clothing was affected by no more girdles, because girdles were made with rubber, and mm-hmm. the military needed rubber. For the general's girdles, so, so they can stand up and, and do the speech. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And maintain their figure. Um, so with girdles going out, uh, a lot more clothing was made with adjustable waistlines to there. kind of have more you know room for adjustment in sizes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the rationing was seen everywhere, and in some sometimes it was just very little things like the zippers. Another example is swimsuits. So prior you know to this time period, women's swimsuits usually had like a little piece of excess fabric that was like a little skirt. Mm-hmm. We had to get rid of those because that's excess fabric. <laughs> Doesn't serve right. a purpose. Right. We're going to wear very practical swimsuits. Yes. Uh, we have invented the bikini. Uh- <laughs> the bikini actually comes like in 1946. Oh. So just after the war, a lot of times people think that it like came around this time frame and it was because of rationing. Mm-hmm. But it came just after the war. It's- it also like didn't take off until the 60s because it was like... A little too much. It's such a good story, though. Yeah. Never mind the fact that there's all the extra stitching on on all these new hems you've introduced. Forget about it. It's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. Some other things that were happening was 
over in Britain, uh, people were encouraged to wear light clothing, like light colored clothing. Okay. Um, because of blackouts. Oh. Um, when blackouts started, there was a huge uptick in accidents between cars and pedestrians. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, so there were public campaigns encouraging people to buy white coats or things that glowed in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, they made glow-in-the-dark buttons, pins, fake flower accessories, things that you could put on and go outside and hopefully someone will not hit you with their car. <laughs> I know there probably isn't, but I'm imagining, like, the the English glam movement of the 70s <laughs> being, like, the 30-year nostalgia cycle from, from like, the blackout fashions of the Blitz. Yeah. Well, you know what's something that was not- Gary Glitter never got hit by a car. He got hit by the law, thankfully, but not by a car. You know uh, something that uh, wasn't affected by rationing? What? Sequins. Military (laughs) didn't need those. (laughs) And, like, tons of sequins were already produced, so, like, Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and sew those on a sweater or something. (laughs) So we got velvet, we got sequins, we got glow-in-the-dark accessories. I'm starting to think I'm right. Yeah. I'm starting to think I'm right. There was also um, something called a siren suit, mm-hmm. um, which was basically an early belted onesie that you sure. could put on to run out to an air raid shelter. It's like a wrap dress, but with pants. Yes. <laughs> this was worn by everyone, though. Sure. Uh, Winston Churchill, big fan. He actually like started the trend. <laughs> um, he had his tailor make them for him. Mm-hmm. It was just a cover-up because they couldn't find a leather strap long enough to make a belt to hold all of his racism. Yeah. 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 Really patriotic clothing was also a thing. Of course. Um, Of course. So, of course, we were making rayon fabric with, you know, flags Mm -hmm. and emblems and stuff in the pattern. Mm -hmm. Think like hidden Mickeys, but find (laughs) the Union Jack. So you're saying the Rose's t-shirt in The Empty Child. Very accurate. Actually, like historical camouflage. Yes. Okay. It should be much smaller print. Eh, it's fine. But yeah. Also, like, it was seen in, like, color palettes. Also, there was, like, an overall mi- military style in a lot of the clothing design. Mm-hmm. Yakmar silk scarves um, were a high-end s- scarf. Mm-hmm. Um and they are ones that really ran with this trend and, uh-huh. in my opinion, made very hideous, <laughs> awful, patriotic scarves. But other people like them. It's fine. Sure, sure. Uh, and they had, like, categories of, like, the armed forces ones and the for the allies and for the home front sweethearts and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they just marketed it. And they, you know, required two coupons and a lot of money. Um <laughs> But it was a way for people to, you know, show their support and, and be stylish. Mm-hmm. You know, seems like far stretched, but people really like to do that stuff nowadays, too. Yeah, yeah. L- look at all the Etsy stores blowing up with, like, custom masks with your favorite, you know, pop culture print from Joanne yeah. Fabric. Well, I'm also thinking about, like, all the stuff that's sold with, like, some type of colored ribbon. Oh, yes, yes. Th- um, this is the antecedent of, of the, the yellow ribbon uh, uh, car magnet, isn't it? And the, the pink breast cancer ribbon mm-hmm. where not much of the money actually goes to anything related to breast cancer. No, no, don't support Susan G. Komen, folks. 
there's much better places to support. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just really fancy, expensive scarves. Yeah, which probably are still out there now. Two whole coupons. That's a, a significant portion of a coat. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so another thing with fashion kind of connects to military uniforms. There is definitely a lot of like public perception around different branches of the military and what uniforms they wore. Uh-huh. Which makes sense because in the 40s, so many people were in different branches of the military. You yeah. were seeing people wear uniforms all the time. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, uh, over in England, like most men wore like battle dress, which was like a functional khaki outfit with a jacket that was done all the way up. And you mm-hmm. couldn't, like, see the shirt or tie. People didn't like them as much. They <laughs> they weren't considered very attractive. Sure, But members sure. of the Royal Air Force had a really nice blazer, and you could see the shirt and tie, and they were seen as much more attractive and, like, mm-hmm. higher up. Ooh la la. I, Not ooh la la, but, you know. <laughs> it, it does seem to tie in with, uh, like, the romance of flying. Yes. Well, and, like, I mean, there's so much throughout time. You know, soldiers are so... Oh, Oh, they're so attractive. It was like Revolutionary <laughs> War. They're in their uniforms. Mm-hmm. Here, oh, they're dashing in their uniform. Is, is your source for the Revolutionary War reaction just Hamilton? Is that what? No. <laughs> okay. Lots of books. Okay. <laughs> but like that's e- even the Civil War, like mm-hmm. very, like always references to, oh, they're so dashing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, flying, it's a lot cooler. <laughs> Um, There's a lot less mud up there. <laughs> a lot less. You'd be surprised. Well, and the women's royal naval, um, the women's royal naval service played into this too with their yeah. outfit. Ooh. Um, theirs was the most like wanted uniform for women, <laughs> um, and they actually had like the least amount of spots available, mm-hmm. but they were the most popular place for women to try to serve. Because they looked that good. Yes, their uniforms had a skirt with lots of pleats, Ooh. and they had brass buttons. Ooh. You couldn't get those elsewhere. <laughs> Functional brass buttons. At yeah, that. like people were like, I want that. <laughs> I'm going to serve in the place, I'm going to look nice. Mm-hmm. Another big change to fashion uh, came with changes on where women were working. Mm-hmm. So women were already working during... And before World War Two, <gasps> amazing! It's people act like that wasn't the case. It was, <laughs> uh, and a lot of them just continued to work in the jobs they already had, mm-hmm. or maybe moved up within like the place where they were working mm-hmm. to fill positions that came open. But there was an influx of women going to work more labor jobs, right? In factories, building things, farming. It did happen. Um, it's just <laughs> it like it happened. Well, it just, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, suddenly the first woman ever is in a job. Right. It's often how it We'd already over. been setting them on fire in shirtwaist factories for yes! decades. Yes! Here's the thing. It's just more weller-off white houseworker women, mm-hmm. housewives, went to work. That's really where the change comes here. Yeah, yeah. But with more women going and doing those types of jobs, mm-hmm. um the fashion they turned to changed. Right. You know, like, you are going to be getting dirty, you need to be safe, we're going to to be wearing traditionally 
male clothing. There, there will be no pleated skirts in the uh, airplane factory. Probably not. Probably We're going to go with pants, overalls, coveralls. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about overalls for a little bit. Let's talk about overalls. Okay, so the first evidence of overalls being mass-produced, um, not like in existence for the first time, but mass-produced, mm-hmm. was in 18, uh, the 1890s by Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis. Uh, and the first jeans that they made were overalls. Uh-huh. Uh, and they were a very popular worker's garment due to them being durable. Uh, Levi's slogan from 1880 to 1890 was actually never rip, never tear. If you put Levi Strauss in a time machine, would he explode? Yes, because they rip all the freaking time and they're already pre-ripped. <laughs> He'd just start attacking a a mannequin, screaming, no, it was not supposed to be this way. But other companies that we know today, like Oshkosh and Lee, would soon follow and also be making jeans and overalls. During the late Edwardian era, uh, there were actually uh, some women's work clothing being made. Um, An early version of coveralls that was actually like a dress, but was sewn into like Pant legs, mm-hmm. kind of like genie pants. Genie pants. Drop crotch and and <laughs> you know tight at the ankles. There's another term for those. What are the hammer pants? Hammer pants. <laughs> hammer pants and genie pants are exactly the same thing. Yes, they are, and equally shiny. Aladdin pants. Yeah, <laughs> let's go with that. Aladdin pants. They they existed for a little bit. They just weren't incredibly common because not a lot of demand. Well, most people also couldn't afford to buy, like, additional clothing. Right, right. <laughs> you had, like, two dresses, and that was that was your life. So, during World War One, many women took on labor and farm jobs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, some returning to normal home life after. Uh, and others didn't because no one came home. They couldn't. Yeah, but they didn't have the poster with the lady in the lunchbox. Yeah. So it doesn't count. <laughs> I like the poster with the lady in the lunchbox, to be fair, but I think that goes a long way to to um, warping the image of the history of, of women performing uh, a wage labor. Are you talking about the Rosie the Riveter one? Yes, that's the one. The, the Norman Rockwell? Yes. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit okay. later. Yeah. Um, so the influx of labor, um, jobs for women during World War I, one definitely led to some fashion shifts. And though it wasn't incredibly common, overalls were worn by some women in the 1920s. Ah, uh, the original romper. <laughs> in the 1930s is when overalls as fashion started to emerge for women. Mm-hmm. And it's for the first time didn't just have to do with like doing men's work. Uh, and it started with kids. Yeah, kids love overalls. Or rather, people love putting kids in overalls. Easy. <laughs> kids can like handle those buttons yeah oh, i bet that's it yeah that's a big thing like the the fine motor skills needed to unhook an overall mm-hmm. is much easier than what it is to like button pants <laughs> it all makes sense now yeah also like they look cute yeah um Boys had been wearing overalls for decades at this point, mm-hmm. um, but it was only just becoming a thing to put girls in overalls. And it started with just putting them in, you know, the same overalls. Right. But then there was a shift where they were made and marketed for girls. Though, like everything 
in fashion. They weren't as durable. Yeah. <laughs> trends here. But they became a staple, and as, like, those kids got older, they continued to wear them. Mm -hmm. By 1937, overalls were being advertised to women as an acceptable option for casual clothing, for being at home, on vacation, and the outdoors. Mm -hmm. But the, like, fit started to change into a different silhouette, mm -hmm. um, and they started to come in, like, different colors and styles, um, but they still weren't, like something you wore to work or really out in public. Now, who's the first woman to wear overalls and a crop top together? I think you gotta look a few decades in the future. Because I want to give them a medal. Good job. Though, you, that is a look. Though there is, um, I think it was actually in the 40s, not the 50s. So some of the overalls that were made that were more fashion were very, like, fitted. Mm -hmm. And, like, form-fitting full coverage, like, in the chest. Like, you could wear it like a romper. And there's a, there's a picture I came across where one of the girls actually is not wearing a shirt underneath it. Mm. Um, and is just wearing it as a romper, which was probably slightly scandalous. <laughs> Unless you were, like, in, like, Hawaii or something where it was, like, tropical. And All bets are off in Hawaii. Everything's legal. It's well, not even a state yet. That probably wouldn't fly in, like, Ohio. But if you're on, like, the ocean coast. Sure, sure. Where people, you know, live in bathing suits. So World War II brought overalls back as working clothes for women. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were available, like, made for women. Mm -hmm. So previously, they'd usually have to, like, just buy, you know, the men's section, which is perfectly fine. Like, you can buy those. But they were being marketed towards them. So there was a different fit. Mm -hmm. And there was also uh, a shift of pants in the 40s as well. Um, oh, no. Try not to shift your pants in the workplace. It's, a, <laughs> it's very embarrassing. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, at first, women primarily just wore men's pants. Mm -hmm. um, but then later, manufacturers started making them for women, though they were pretty much like exactly the same style. Uh -huh. They probably just charged more. So you're saying they didn't really shift their pants? They didn't really shift. Okay. But they started marketing. Um, and They want us to believe they shift the pants? <laughs> yes. That's so hard for me to accept. Yeah. And so they became more common, especially um, with... Like, Hollywood stars would wear them as well. Catherine Hepburn was known oh, for yeah. wearing pants. Her whole and, thing was pants. Mm -hmm, that's what she wore all the time in her real life. And in a lot of her movies, she was shown that way, too. Mm -hmm. When people do stuff in the movies, it makes it more acceptable mm -hmm. in a, like, overall thing. Like, have knives and be barbarians. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love her. <laughs> that movie's much later, though. Yes, yes, that's much like, later. That's... that's Decades later. But, of course, it would be decades before women would be wearing pants at school or jobs that weren't, like, heavy labor. Right. Not acceptable there. Uh, another fashion trend that was related to women working um, these jobs was what they did with their hair. Mm -hmm. um, so, first off, the first trend was that hair was just longer um, because it meant you didn't have to pay a salon. Right. And money was tight. But it was also easier to, you know, be held back working machinery and in factories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's that, like, no man's land where it's long, but not long enough to really be uh, grabbable. Uh -huh. Yeah. Up and secure. Yes. Yeah, longer hairstyles were more common. 
trend of wearing scarves on your head, which is very common with the Rosie the Riveter Mm -hmm. image, um, or hair snoods. Are those the crocheted looking basket? Yes. It like holds your hair up. That that is my image of a, a woman in the forties. Yeah, very square shoulders, uh, plain brown uh, uh, everything, and hair in a little crocheted basket. Yeah, yeah, very common. Mm-hmm. Hair snoods should come back. <laughs> they seem very nice. Like I you think can I saw someone in a snood like a few weeks ago, and I wondered if they were doing a historical cosplay because yeah, you don't see it often. No. But, you know, you can secure it up without, like, actually having to have your hair tied. It seems mm-hmm. like for people who get headaches from having their hair in a bun or a ponytail, that would be a really great option for them. Would you snood if snoods were in? I would. I'd probably make my own. Yeah, you should do it. Make a snood. Yeah. Now is the time to experiment. And just wear a snood around the house. <laughs> Go on a like Zoom it. call with my snood. Yeah. yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Another uh, trend was uh, Victory Rolls. Ah, by Little Debbie. No, but man, I want a Little Debbie now. <laughs> Why do you have to, I'm going to have to wait like a, two weeks till we go grocery shopping to get a Little Debbie. <laughs> Why would you bring that up? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my God, I totally want one. Well, we were so upset with the Swiss for being neutral, we had to call them Victory Rolls. My joke is internally consistent. <laughs> but all I want is a little snack cake. I want one of those little, like, zebra ones. <laughs> I like those. Oh, this is a bad episode to put up during Ramadan. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, victory rolls, not Swiss cakes, uh, were those, like, curls you think about uh-huh. with the 40s? The Or, like, swing dancers where they got, like, the big curls at the top of their head? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so those are victory rolls. Okay. And there's a lot of stories that uh, it's associated, like the naming came from maneuvers done by fighter pilots, and that was to show support. Uh, That seems far-stretched, but, like, again, people are buying scarves with flags on it. I don't... I would wager the young ladies had other ways to show support to the dashing young pilots. If you know what I mean. (laughs) What makes, I think, more sense mm-hmm. um, is that they needed a way to keep their hair back, and it was really fashionable, mm-hmm. so they could look and feel pretty mm-hmm. while getting covered in grease. <laughs> but someone's probably going to write in and be like, no, actually, it really was like yeah. someone doing a swoopty swoop. <laughs> a what now? A swoopty swoop. Ah, yes. So uh, all of that... Mm-hmm. Um, really uh comes together in that like iconic style of Rosie the Riveter. Head scarves, coveralls, overalls. Yep. Yeah. Biceps. Big Biceps. part of the look. Rosie the Riveter was an American symbol. There were other images of women across the war effort mm-hmm. in different countries being used with like different names, but basically kind of spreading the same message. Mm-hmm. Um support our ladies who are building our tanks to support our boys. Yes. Yeah. In 1943, um, there was a painting made called Ruby Loftus Screwing a Breach Ring. Uh, and that is an example of another form of Rosie, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a painting commissioned uh, in Britain by the War Artist Advisory Committee. Um, and it was done by Laura Knight. 
and Ruby was a real person. It was a 21-year-old woman who became an expert at the production of breech rings um, in seven months instead of, like, years, like it normally (laughs) took. Um, Well, there is a war on. She had to really (laughs) apply herself. The uh, War Artist Advisory Committee um, commissioned it to be made. They were commissioning artists to record the war effort at home and abroad, and there was a big push um, in factories to build up morale. There was a lot of discontent among factory workplaces Mm -hmm. uh, with a growing number of strikes um, for a lot of reasons, but some of which had to do with just employees feeling like their abilities were not valued and that the employers viewed women who worked these jobs as like lower class and immoral. Yeah. There's a lot of judgment going on. I imagine a lot of sexual harassment going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like... Because you know how those types of girls can be. Yeah. Well, and like, for example, like when this, this picture was very popular and the story of her being really good at making these breech rings... Mm-hmm. There was a committee that didn't believe it and, like, sent people to be like, we don't, like, this is fabricated. She can't be as good at this. And they were actually like, oh, no, she actually is. Mm-hmm. She, she's good. The first thing they had to research is, what is a breech ring? It's a thing that goes in stuff. Probably a plane. Uh, it's apparently a part of an anti-aircraft gun. There you go. The, the particular breech ring she's painted making. Ah, uh, so again, things like this were seen everywhere, uh, various campaigns that were propaganda, mm-hmm. um, trying to boost morale and, and fight the cause and join the effort. Um, in the U.S., there was a lot of, uh, campaigns focused on targeting solely housewives. Mm-hmm. They didn't want the women that were already employed. They needed the people who weren't employed right. to take jobs. Um, and there's also propaganda directed at husbands of these housewives to, to let them let them do yeah. that. Um, and I think one thing to kind of keep in mind with all of this is that the propaganda was really focused on white women. Mm-hmm. That's who they wanted. That's who <laughs> they wanted first. Um, it was pretty hard for women of color to find positions. And mm-hmm. when they did, they were treated very poorly, not paid as well all that and still not paid as well still still there's a trend y'all it hasn't gone away so the term uh rosie the riveter was first used in uh 1942 in a song Mm -hmm. um of the same name that was written by reed evans and john jacob loeb cousin to richard loeb of leopold and loeb do you remember that i'm thinking more of bialystok and bloom myself No, Leopold and Loeb, if you haven't- The murderers. The murderers who murdered, you know, a child here in Chicago. Valen Crimes 2019, I believe. So go go, uh, back and listen to that one if you haven't. About 14 months back. And this song became really popular. People loved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are a lot of different women associated as Rosie here in the U.S., uh, many who appeared in different- propaganda posters and images and films Mm -hmm. um rose will monroe was one of the ones that was most associated um with posing for a lot of things so one of the rosies was actually named rose yes that's cool and surprising actually yeah uh now there are two images of rosie the riveter that are most famous uh the one you mentioned by norman rockwell Mm -hmm. rosie with her lunchbox eating a sandwich showing some muscle yeah and it was uh, first appeared on the Saturday Evening Post 
mm-hmm. on Memorial Day in 1943. As a lot of Rockwell's work would. You know. Yeah. The model was uh, a 19-year-old girl named Mary Doyle, uh, who was a telephone operator and not a riveter. But she was still jacked. She was not. Rockwell actually apologized <laughs> her years later for making her seem so big. <laughs> he was like, I am sorry if that caused you any distress. Um, well, yeah, guys keep asking me on the street to bench press them. It's very <laughs> embarrassing. It was very popular, um, mm-hmm. and it led to the U.S. Department of Treasury um, getting the image loaned to them for use with war bonds. <laughs> Now, I think the more interesting image is uh, the one that came in prior in 1942 by J. Howard Miller, uh, and it's the one titled We Can Do It. Mm-hmm. It's the, the Rosie the Riveter with the, yeah, yeah. the fist and close up. We Can Do we It. We Can Do It. Yeah. Um, it's commonly referred to now as like Rosie the Riveter, mm-hmm. but that name, that, that was never attached to it. <laughs> never attached to it. Just... Like kind of overseas, there was a lot of resentment that had built up in factories um, Mm -hmm. here, especially uh, between management and labor unions in the 30s. Right. Can't imagine why. Uh, So companies started to create (laughs) propaganda within their companies to encourage labor and management relationships. Mm -hmm. If you want just a tip for any bosses that might be listening to this. Somehow you made it through 99 episodes of what we have to say. <laughs> but if you want my respect, pay me. Don't don't put up posters of me looking smiley and happy. Pay me. Right? Right? In uh, 1942, Miller was hired to create a series of these posters to raise morale and lower the likelihood of labor unrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made 42 posters for Westinghouse uh, here in the Midwest, and they were displayed for two weeks at a time within the factory, then being replaced with you know the next one as a campaign and again right. again. The We Can Do It one was up in December 1943 um, for two weeks. Was only seen within the factory, and then was never seen again for four decades. What? That is wild. It, it did not, like, reappear until the 1980s. Like, I don't think it's a stretch to say it is the most it is the popular iconic. image of any U.S. war propaganda. Uh-huh. And no it, one knew it until the 80s. It was just, like, sealed in Geraldo's vault for 40 years? <laughs> well, and that's, like... The way it is in people's mind nowadays is that it is one of these, like, public propaganda to bring the women in, to bring yeah, everyone. Yeah, It was just seen in this factory. It was it just, It was made yeah. for the people that were already working. It was not made to bring more workers in. No, it's just, we, we love you, we support you, stop complaining, signed the management. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in the 80s, it, it came up again, and it has been reproduced Many times since then, yeah. as we're talking about. And I think the thing that's really interesting is that there's also just, like, not a lot known about the artist. <laughs> like, no one's even really sure when he was born or when he died. Has he died? <laughs> yes. Who can say? Who could say? <laughs> They're pretty positive he's dead. How old would he be? You don't know. <laughs> but yeah, blew my mind. <laughs> blew my mind. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about women fashion yes. in this time period. The fun kind of fashion. Well, it's not much <laughs> happened with men. Right. Um, but I went looking. I wanted to find, like, something. 
neckties made of rayon rather than Japanese <laughs> silk. Ooh. Actually, that was probably a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I went to look at uh, was the zoot suit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now that is a fashion with a lot of extra fabric that we do not need in times of rationing. Yeah, that's going to be a problem <laughs> here. So uh, the zoot suit, an oversized suit mm-hmm. for people who don't know. Named um, for the Muppet. No. Because that's a wild coincidence if it's not named after the Muppet. He's the saxophonist in the band. Oh, no. Uh, The Zoot Suit first appeared uh, in African-American communities um, like Detroit, Harlem, Chicago in the 30s. uh, And it grew in popularity in the 40s nationwide by jazz musicians, especially in uh, minority working class communities. You know, where the jazz happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, so in 1943, in L.A., there wasn't something called the Zoot Suit Riots. There are actual Zoot Suit Riots. There are actual Zoot Suit Riots. So there's a chance that that song might be a more offensive thing to, to It have. is so offensive when you actually think about it. Than just the name of the band, the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Swing Revival has a lot to answer for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually went and looked up that song. And it kind of references it, kind of doesn't, and in a statement made many years after it was released, it was like, yeah, it really didn't have much to do with it. <laughs> we just, we, I mean, we weren't making like a political statement on it. It is a rhythmic phrase. I'll give, the, I'll give them that. Um, um, so the Zoot Suit Riots, uh, Riot. throwback bottle of beer. It's, it's catchy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's so catchy. I'm going to be honest, I was really upset when I read the lyrics and I was like, this just vaguely references it. It's not like a good folk song about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, what the hell? Give me some Gordon Lightfoot about the Zoot Suit Riots. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but good, the good folk songs are all about shipwrecks and mine strikes. Yes. So uh, what it was was attacks that were led by white Americans primarily of servicemen, uh, focused on Mexican-Americans and other minorities who wore zoot suits. Mm-hmm. It was racism. It was just straight up racism. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let, let's just put that they, right out in front. They just used, like, wartime patriotism to, like, have a reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, patriotism and racism are deeply entwined, in America especially. Especially in America, in my uh, experience as an American, that yes. is. I don't want to discount that tie anywhere else. Yes. But um, and yeah, so they they used the fact that you know rationing was in place and clothing was regulated, but like that doesn't stop people from wearing clothes they already own. Yeah. And so it was like people who wore zoot suits, you know, were unpatriotic. Mm-hmm. Um, because they didn't just mothball them until after the war was over. Yes. Like, so that was, like, one of the aspects, like, this gives us an excuse, but it all comes down to racism. And we're going to we're gonna talk a little bit about the history of what led up to this. Sure. Who knew that we were going this direction? Pause the nut. You, you knew. I, I didn't know, actually, until I wrote it. And then I was like, I guess we are. <laughs> it's connected to fashion. Mm-hmm. So during the early 20th century, farmers recruited Mexican immigrants to come work the farms in areas like Texas and California. Right. And then between 1929 and 1936, the U.S. government deported between 500,000 and 2 million Mexicans, or people of Mexican descent, to Mexico Mm -hmm. 
Um, 60% are estimated to have been U.S. citizens. Sure, sure. Um, because, you know, we need to make things easier on the white people during the Great Depression. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the excuse given was the same one that has been given for the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. The taking of jobs. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Jobs and resources. Right. Though the whole reason we were like, please come to us is so you can work our farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, same as it always is. Uh, always. At the end of the 1930s, L.A. still had the highest concentration of uh, people of Mexican descent outside of Mexico. Right. And they were faced with job discrimination and attacks. Um, Local L.A. newspapers were targeting Mexican youth as being trouble. Yeah. So after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government, as we all should know, rounded up Japanese Americans Mm -hmm. from the West Coast and put them into internment camps. And then they're all like, okay, we're going to war. Let's make a deal with Mexico to bring Mexican citizens back to L.A. to work farms under the Mexican Farm Labor Agreement. Mm -hmm. So we sent them all away, now let's bring them back. Right. So they, along with other uh, workers of different ethnic and minority backgrounds, flocked to the area. Mm Mm-hmm. Racial tensions grew Mm -hmm. because people are dumb, (laughs) let's be honest. In August 1942, there was an event that the newspapers would call the Sleepy Lagoon Murder. That sounds like a a cozy mystery novel. (laughs) It sounds like Like fourth in in the the tea-drinking detective series. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So, Jose Diaz was found unconscious and later died. The autopsy would show that he was intoxicated and he had blunt head trauma, but they had no, like, actual cause of death determined. Uh, so, despite no cause and, like, no evidence, um, 25 Latino youth were arrested and 17 tried without really any due process. I would blame the people who found him, and then he was later dead. <laughs> Um, so this led to a huge media campaign calling for action against zoot suitors. Uh, and the entire trial... <laughs> zoot suitors are people who want to date the Muppet yeah. that, that plays the saxophone. Yeah. yeah. The entire trial focused basically on their freaking clothing. Uh-huh. Um, the district attorney got the judge to agree that they were not allowed to change out of the clothing they were arrested in, which was zoot suits. <laughs> And they were not allowed to speak to their attorney during the trial. Okay, that's illegal. You can't uh, not do that. They had to sit away from them. Uh-huh. And the district attorney would, like, make them stand up anytime they were, like, talked to. Mm-hmm. So the jury could fully see their zoot suits. Mm-hmm. And, like, his whole argument was, well, they should see what these hoodlums are and, like, these suits are associated with them. Uh, he also called the chief of the Foreign Relations Bureau of the L.A. Sheriff's Office to testify on how Mexicans had a biological predisposition to crime and killing because of their Aztec ancestors. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty much no one could be placed on the scene mm-hmm. of the crime. It had no evidence, and they were all convicted. Are we ever going to tell the story <laughs> of a trial that doesn't go that way? Like, this is probably the most egregious one. Mm -hmm. Like, the Chicago 7 were in Chicago at the time, Mm -hmm. but... (laughs) Well, an appeals court, about two years later, would overturn all the convictions. All right. Which is good. They would would all be released. They would all get out. They did not die in jail or be sentenced to death. So, 
I guess we have the happiest ending there that we yeah, can have. Yeah. But after this case, there was obviously like a lot more tension. The media made a firestorm out of it. Right. There were a lot of different instances of U.S. military members getting into violent altercations with young Mexican-Americans in zoot suits. Um, it did not help that the government built a training center right smack dab in the middle of like the Mexican community. Because mm-hmm. the L.A. city, like, did not plan at all, like, oh, their city growth. L.A. is the least planned city <laughs> on Earth. Yeah. But the Zoot Suit riots. Not gonna do it? Nope. <laughs> not after all that. that. No. So the riots began June 3rd, 1943. Uh, Eleven sailors were walking downtown L.A. And they got into an argument with a group of young Zoot Suiters. And they later told the LAPD that they were jumped by a gang, mm-hmm. and the LAPD went after them with a whole lot of off-duty police officers. So they weren't even getting paid to rough up uh, minorities. Mm-hmm. Wow, you, you wouldn't see cops do that these days. Actually, you would. It's it's pretty much why they become cops. The next day, 200 sailors headed to East LA, the center of the Mexican-American community in LA, mm-hmm. uh, and began assaulting anyone in a zoot suit with clubs and stripping them and burning their clothes. Sure. Uh, they, again, attacked anyone. Uh, they were focused on Mexican-Americans, but they were going to attack you if you were wearing a zoot suit. The media began covering it, mm-hmm. which just led to more people joining and it spreading. And over several days, thousands of residents and military attacked anyone in a zoot suit, pulling them out of movie theaters, buses, any place you were seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, the police were present, but weren't, you know, arresting any white folks. Um, mm-hmm. But they did arrest about 500 Latinos for rioting. Sure, sure. Um, The L.A. City Council uh, approved afterwards a resolution to criminalize the wearing of zoot suits within the city limits of L.A., Mm -hmm. but from what I could find, no ordinance was actually ever approved or signed into law by the mayor. In their Um, defense, it was already illegal to drag people off of a bus and beat them in the street. Just because you don't get arrested for it doesn't mean it's not illegal. Yeah. The, Wait, uh, I'm getting word that is exactly what it means in, in practical uh, uh, effect. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry for my mistake. I, I must apologize. So the L.A. mayor, though he didn't sign this into law, mm-hmm. uh, he did uh, try to blame the whole thing on the Mexican juvenile delinquents and the white Southerners who had moved into the area. It was them. It wasn't the L.A. people. Right, right. Yeah. You know, the, these rowdy country bumpkin boys yeah. moving into the army barracks. Yeah. So that that's a little, little, little history of the zoot suits mm-hmm. and something I did not know was a real thing. Cherry Pop and Daddies have a lot to answer to. <laughs> um, and so when this uh, so show suggestion came in um, from One Fine Cat, uh, one thing they suggested I talk about was uh, Hugo Boss. Mm-hmm who is a German fashion designer and, you know, still exists, the company, to this okay. day. Not, he died still in the 40s. Okay, but that artist, we still don't know for we sure. We don't know for sure about the artist. So it is commonly mistaken, from what I could find out, uh, that uh, Hugo Boss designed Nazi uniforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did not design them. They were designed by someone else. Uh, he was, however, a straight-up Nazi, and so it's a 
bit of a minor distinction. And he did let his uh, company produce all of the Nazi uniforms. Okay, so um, he, he's responsible for them as a boss, but not necessarily as Hugo Boss, the designer. Yes. Okay. They they produced all of them. Um, he also uh, used, uh, you know, Nazi slave labor. Where did Nazis acquire their slave labor, dear? You know, around. around you know, like Poland, maybe? Yeah. Czechoslovakia? Yeah, you know. I'm gonna be honest, I didn't go much more into this because I was writing this on my work computer and I didn't want to Google Nazis. Because <laughs> I don't need that in my search history. I love you, dear. I'm a little worried about that Word document even being on my computer. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but he wasn't the uh, only awful fashion person of this time frame. <laughs> you don't say. No. You're on this. I mean, I'd say whoever uh, uh, designed the the American uniforms is pretty awful at fashion. Yeah, they aren't the most handsome looking. A lot more practical than uh, the the Nazi uniforms, infamously so. Yeah, yeah, yes. That was that was uh, something that one fine cat pointed out is that the Nazi uniforms, you know, were not good. <laughs> they like froze to death in them because they were bad. <laughs> they just looked pretty. They made a statement. We'll yes. go with that. Let's go with that. They made a statement. The statement is you should die for being a communist or disabled or Jewish or gay. It's a statement, <laughs> I guess. Um, so this other awful fashion person we're going to talk about is uh, Coco Chanel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you okay? We're coming for all your faves. <laughs> this is a Coco Chanel call out post. <laughs> Coco Chanel is cancel party. What happened to Chanel 1 through 4? Ask the right questions. So she was pretty awful. That, that's just, that that sums it up, but let's go into some details. Uh, so in 1924, uh, she made an agreement with the with the Werthermeyer brothers, uh, who were directors of the perfume house. Wait, this perfume house is actually called Bourgeois? Bourgeois, yeah. What in the world? <laughs> yeah, Bourgeois. <laughs> That's not, that can't be real. No, it's real. Um, and they, the agreement was to create uh, Parfume Chanel, and they agreed to manage, produce, market, and distribute Chanel Number no. 5, mm -hmm. uh, the perfume that everyone knows. Yeah. Even if you don't know perfume. I just named it. I couldn't, I don't know if I've ever smelled it in my life. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like perfume, so... <laughs> Anytime those people, like, try to attack me in, like, the perfume areas, I'm just like, no! So they would, again, make it and do all this stuff for 70% of the company. 20% mm -hmm. uh, would go to someone else, uh, and Chanel would wipe her hands of it and get 10% stock for use of her name. Mm -hmm. um, but would have nothing to do with any part of it. So she uh, was a straight-up Nazi supporter. Um, sure, sure. And when the Nazis seized Jewish-owned property and businesses, uh, she tried to get control mm -hmm. of it by saying, "Hey, I'm the I should be the owner." Yeah. But they thought ahead, and because uh, they had a feeling that crap like this was going to go down. The, the Werthermeyer brothers. Uh huh. And they signed the company over to a Christian businessman who could keep it. Because they they would have been seized. Yes, because yes. they were Jewish. Mm -hmm. uh, and he gave it back to them after the war. <laughs> um, but because of that, she couldn't get it. They couldn't take it from this guy. Mm -hmm. um, and she was really pissed. <laughs> so in the mid-40s, Chanel Number no. 5 was worth about $9 million at the time, which is about 
240 million now. Mm-hmm. Um, she tried to take them down again. And this time it was by destroying the brand and customer loyalty. And she went all public that like Chanel number no. five was no longer the original fragrant fragrance. They, you know, it wasn't up to her standards. It was inferior. They changed it. They did all these things. Um, she couldn't endorse it anymore. And she filed a lawsuit against them. And they're kind of like, we, we know you were a Nazi. Like, if you want all this to come out. <laughs> um, but in 1947, there was an agreement that was come to um, that she'd get some wartime profits and like 2% of sales and leave them the hell alone. Mm-hmm. But she's an awful person. And not just because of this, but because so, like in France, like the fashion industry and stuff, like when Paris became occupied, yes. okay, a lot of like fashion designers like, skadooted right and some stayed and worked with nazis she was a nazi supporter but like closed down all her shops which is very weird she definitely could have stayed open and operating perfectly fine right um it's believed that she closed them down so that way four four thousand employees would be without work because a few years earlier there was like a labor strike uh-huh and like it's believed that it was out of retaliation of like <laughs> Screw all you. Mm-hmm. You're all out of work. Yeah. I don't need to keep this open. I have money. <laughs> so, yeah. Think about that next time you wear your, uh... You can continue to wear the perfume, because, like, she doesn't actually own... She didn't own it. Right. But maybe other stuff. She's not getting that 2% anymore. She did. She did. But maybe think about other things mm-hmm. of hers. I'm pretty sure all the surviving members of the Ford family aren't Nazi supporters anymore, either. Okay. Just Henry and a few of his kids, I think. Okay. <laughs> uh, so after the war, there was uh, now campaigns and propaganda to get women to go back home. Right. Clothing rationing and fabric restrictions uh, did endure for some time, especially um, over in England. Yeah, they had rationing pretty well into the 50s. Clothing fashioning ended, um, I think it was like 49, but various food and other items right, continued right. Um, yeah. past then. In the late 40s, what is referred to as the new look of fashion was introduced by Christian Dior. Mm -hmm. Um, Another smelly boy. Yes. A a big, big Mr. Fragrance man. Yes. Um, It's basically the traditional 1950s, like, style we know now. Yes. Of the feminine, like, longer dresses, fuller skirts, rounded, like, shoulders, very delicate very billowy, four-inch waist. Yes. Yeah. At least that's how they're always drawn in the ads. Yeah. Um, and initially it was like, what the hell, dude? Like, <laughs> we just came out of war. They're still, like, rationing. Like, all this stuff's gone down. Like, you think we can wear this? But it, it quickly, you know, people missed that. They yeah. missed looking fancy. Um, <laughs> and it took over and became the style. In the 50s, uh, overalls and, like, coverall type stuff were still a thing for women, but they took on a very tailored jumpsuit style. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't quite as popular, though, because women still preferred to have, like, separate tops and bottoms and bigger wardrobe. Right. And uh, another trend that kind of came in was the popularity of tropical prints, because people were coming back from the Pacific Islands and, mm-hmm. and various other regions where, you know, and bringing new fashion and ideas with them. Also the beginning of, like, tiki bars. Yes. Which are, in their own way, the beginning of kitsch culture. Yes. So that 
is World War II in fashion. Yeah. Yeah. A healthy chunk of it, at least. You know, I it definitely isn't all of it. Tried tried to pull out some things. This ended up much longer than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't think there was going to be that much there, and then I started finding out about like horrible things. <laughs> I just kept going. So, darling, what did you learn? One of the facts from this that is really going to stick with me is how much of how much of the enduring uh, images of, of like wartime America come from getting people on the home front to just shut up and do their job mm-hmm. and, and not advocate for, for their uh, rights as, as workers and as integral parts of the war machine. Well, how can you have rights as workers when our boys are overseas? Right? Yeah. Count, count yourself lucky you're making the bullets and not getting them shot at you. By the way, we need you to pull 12 hours. Nothing's as important as them. Right. Yeah. You're, you're going to worry about getting your bum pinched when uh, somebody else is starving in a trench? Actually, yes, I am going to worry about getting my bum pinched. Screw you. Yeah. Yeah. This, that is a thing that is used time and time again, no matter what the situation is in the mm-hmm. world of where you don't matter because of this other thing. Right. When your problem isn't with them, it's the people in your face making your problem. They're yes. separate people. Yes. Yeah. So, so what what have we learned today? Uh, L.A. cops always racist, always shockingly racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, zoot suits. <laughs> We've learned a lot about zoot suits. We've learned that. Uh, what about our troops? Always a favored excuse and non sequitur, but still works regardless. Mm-hmm. We, we've learned a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so that we're going to take a quick break and read a bunch of letters. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Prompt for this episode was you wanted some- <laughs> nothing to do with this episode. <laughs> you wanted to hear some new recipes to, to maybe give you some inspiration. Yes. Maybe I'll figure out a way to share them somehow. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep an eye on- Maybe ma- Instagram? I'll figure it out. Maybe Facebook maybe might Facebook? actually get used. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. If you mind, just shoot us an email. Yeah. You won't. <laughs> But Ramona's response comes with a, a bit of a, a personal story of like getting over uh, kitchen anxiety and uh, latching on to a recipe for a uh, pad crapau, a Thai dish that is pretty simple but quite tasty, and shared a, a, a recipe that, that she adapted to her use for use with one single pressure cooker and also a, a pot cooking rice on the side. But still, pretty That's good. Do it. That's the way to do it. Simple. It it sounds really good. Uh, she also encloses a bit of an update on her her uh, activist outreach to essential workers in this time, and also her her drive to pursue her dreams and and uh, uh, move in with a friend, regardless of the the greater context. Yeah. So good luck to you. Thanks, Ramona. Kristen uh, writes in and shares. Shares a food that they love uh, any chance they get to eat or make, and that is New Orleans-style gumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, and shared uh, their grandmother's recipe, which is made every year at Thanksgiving, and it sounds really good. <laughs> sounds so good. I want gu- Not only do I want Little Debbie snack cakes, I want some gumbo right now. <laughs> People always say that, you know, it's good if it comes from, like, grandma's recipe. 
Some grandmas had to be bad cooks, right? Oh, mine was awful. Just statistically. My grandma was a terrible cook. But then you don't make anything by her recipe. I don't have any recipes that she made because that woman, like, didn't cook. Well, there you go. <laughs> so so maybe if, if the recipe exists and it's from a grandma, it's worth trying. Yes. Yeah. It's just the natural selection of recipes. Yeah. 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 It won't exist if it wasn't good. <laughs> no one's going to pass it on. Thanks, Kristen. I want to eat it. Isaac uh, responds with, with not a full recipe, but more of a food hack with a hashtag and everything. Hey, food hacks are good. Toss some feta into your, your uh, macaroni and cheese. There's a little pops of tang in there. Yeah. I am all about putting random cheeses in mac and cheese. <laughs> Isaac also, like, sure, goes for the box, but then develops their own, like, cheese sauce to use with it, including little bits of feta in there. Yeah. Yeah. Kraft mac and cheese is wonderful as is. Yeah. It is a wonderful food. But you but can it's do also, so much. It's a vessel it's, for it's creation. It's a platform. Yeah. Just get creative with that box. <laughs> uh, Isaac also provides a very encouraging sounding update to, to their personal travails from the previous prompt. Uh, it looks like they will be uh, making a move, uh, seeking out new shores, new opportunities, and a new home. So congratulations, Isaac. Hopefully. Hopefully. Fingers crossed, but it's looking better than it looked two weeks ago. Yes. Kevin writes in, past prompt of mm -hmm. what you've been doing during the pandemic. Uh, and Kevin's job is essential. And due to a lot of things, it's a cluster quack, as they said. Man. Which is like my favorite saying now. Yeah. I love it. You can um, say that one at work. Kevin also shares uh, a favorite recipe that is used on holidays and special occasions. Um, it doesn't have an official name but they call it egg dish it is a casserole uh mm -hmm. with bread egg sausage and cheese is it like a frittata is it more like a quiche it, it's on the verge of those okay it's in the family you, yeah i think it sounds delicious <laughs> thanks kevin <laughs> Uh, Jerry wrote in with, with a pair of stories that are completely separate from our prompts, which is something that, honestly, I really enjoy. Yeah, it's so fun. I like when people just have their own things they like to share. And Jerry's things are, in addition to a cat picture. Yeah. Love it. Cute. Great. Uh, so is cute. that the, the story about the uh, uh, reluctant adoption of shopping cart use. Yeah. Reminded them of the first tractor with a cab, the UDLX tractor with upholstered seats and a fully enclosed cab and operating windows. Even with all of these new uh, features uh, to build a marketing campaign around, they sold about 107. <laughs> there were a lot of things going against the, this tractor uh, being released in 1938, not... <laughs> Not the most popular time for capital investments on the farm. No. Uh, a $5,000 price tag at that. But also farmers thought that a seat with a cab was effeminate. It's always a thing. Uh, that is always a thing. <laughs> in, in addition to a picture of a cat, we also got a picture of a joiner from a rail assembly. When, when rail lines were so, so much more common along smaller towns, towns that you wouldn't have a chance of getting a train to now, used to all be on rail networks. Mm -hmm. Between Jerry's story of finding this broken rail joiner and uh, an interest in tractors, I'm going to assume they live in an agricultural zone. 
getting out my Sherlock Holmes hat and going to make that guess. The image of history, which is one that we've spoken out against on the show several times, is a smooth transition from barbarism to to um, the, the height of civilization, which is now, and leading to what will be even better, which is, you know, next year, is not the case no matter what sort of frame you're looking at. Yeah. Everything goes in fits and starts. Everything ends. Everything slides back. If, uh-huh. if you want to, to say there is a forward, n- nothing is uh, uh, constant in that direction. Yeah. So thanks, Jerry. Peter writes in and shares two of his favorite and less normal than usual recipes. <laughs> sure. uh, the first one is a Renaissance style Arabic spiced ravioli, uh, where the ravioli filling is a light tasty meat like turkey or chicken with uh, parmesan and scallions and cinnamon and ginger and cloves and sugar with a sauce that's made of like saffron butter and raisins. That sounds cool as heck. I want to eat it. Uh, And the second recipe is Sousa spiced nut and date scones. Kind of like mini calzones where uh, the dough this is what I'm excited about. It has rose water in it. Um, but the filling is like dates and walnuts and pistachios and spices and stuff. And they sound really good. But thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Claritic's favorite recipe isn't so much a recipe, but a recipe book. The Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake Book. Ooh. Which is exactly what it says on the cover. A big book of birthday cakes published by Women's Weekly, the Australian magazine. Uh, It it was a for-fun column, a side project for the magazine's kitchen, because women's magazines always have a kitchen department. And and the cakes became popular because they looked as if they were designed by suburban housewives who were being pulled in five different directions. These are not designer cakes. These are cakes that you can make. Yeah. While a kid is is pulling on your apron and another one just got bit by the dog. Oh, no! (laughs) So after around 40 years of production, uh, there's about 100 recipes in there. Only some have been removed over time, usually because those ingredients have been declared harmful. Oh! Like what? That's one of the details that is not in this email, but it's a question that jumped out to me as well. I expect a follow-up email. I need to know more about what is harmful. And I guess tying into our previous episode's prompt, there, there was to be an exposition of, at a food and wine festival about the, these cakes that has been canceled due, due to health concerns. That's probably where we're going to find out what was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to speak explicitly on that topic, uh, one thing Claritic is dealing with is uh, being at home like so many other people, but the, the local construction crew is still uh. hard at work. And she's getting to hear all of their various music tastes over oh the sound of jackhammers. Oh, boy. Uh, stay strong. You, uh, you got it. You can do it. Belafon, uh writes in, they've been trying to get through a couple of America's Test Kitchen cookbooks during this time. I do enjoy the America's Test Kitchen. Yeah. It's, it's like Good Eats, but with a public TV sort of vibe. Yeah. 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 I miss... Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmerman. Yeah. I really liked him. I mean, I like, he's not like that. I like him, but I really like his show and they took it off air. Mm-hmm. Well, they just kept cutting the budget until he couldn't get actual Bizarre Foods. I just want repeats. It's just right? enjoyable to watch. It's right? so educational and yes. interesting. Yes. 
it falls into like the same category of those shows where I, I like, learn so much. I like Andrew Zimmern's tiny glasses. <laughs> He's really tiny glasses. Bellafon also uh, sent us some pictures of Gloria, who is unfortunately uh, going through treatment for heartworm. So I am thinking about Gloria. Aww. All the best thoughts to Gloria. That big puppy can get through. Every night at 8 o'clock, people around here, like, they shoot off air (laughs) horns and clappers, and that's all for Gloria, actually. all for Gloria. It's not for some weird Chicago thing of singing out their window. (laughs) Nope, it's for Gloria. Because stay-at-home orders does stuff to people. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Bellafon. One fine cat who inspired this episode. I hope I did you proud. Coincidentally writes in for this episode. They didn't know. There's no way they could have known. I hope you like it. (laughs) To answer several recent prompts of favorite old movie, Metropolis, but the godfather for the favorite old-ish movie. Yeah, we're at a point in time now where you have to have your old favorite movie and your old-ish and your childhood. We are more than 100 years deep in the history of cinema. There you go. It's getting very hard. I'd have to check uh, dates, but I'm pretty sure those two put us pre-enforcement and post-strict enforcement of code. Either side. Uh, One Fine Cat's uh, day-to-day life hasn't been affected too much by the pandemic uh, due to, you know, being fortunate enough to work remotely. But uh, they and their roommates have all been listening to a lot more podcasts, including ours. This is finally the the chance to infect (laughs) the people they've been living with. With podcasts. And ours in particular. Of course, the the biggest change has been the increased uh, presence of Zoom and other video conference apps. So much Zoom. Uh, Both in work, but also in, you know, personal lives. Uh, One Fine Cat's uh, RPG group has moved to uh, video chats rather than meeting in person. I have never faced, like, video chatted people before in my life until, Mm -hmm. like, now. (laughs) It's a trip, huh? It's a lot. (laughs) <laughs> but but the story of uh, the the Passover Seder from uh, uh, this past week that was last weekend, right? What is time? I have no idea what time is. I don't even know. I like was it two days ago? Was it three weeks ago? I have no idea. <laughs> But uh, by teleconferencing, that that means even more people got to show up because nobody had to drive, right? Yep. But the downside, the the latency and the lag made the the songs uh, just a cacophony, a mess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Turned into Hebrew in the round from the sound of things. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like a lovely memory. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, and that brings us up to the present. One Fine Cat's favorite recipe while they've been learning to cook recently. Uh, favorite recipe so far is uh, a, shaksu- uh, a shakshuka recipe that is attached to the email. Thank you very much. Yeah. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. If you would like to send us an email, where can those go, dear? Podcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your, your show suggestions. It might eventually turn into an episode like hey. this one. Your corrections, your questions, any stories that you might want to share, like we got uh, uh, this episode, and of course, uh, the responses to our usual prompts. Got a prompt for us? This one's tricky. (laughs) Okay. This one's tricky for me, I mean, because I want to do something special for big episode 100. Uh Uh-huh. So any uh, uh, prompt that would go with it just sounds like I'm begging people to pat me on the back, and that feels icky. 
Do you just want to know what people's favorite episode that we've done is? Is that it? I don't even want to go that far. So what I'm going to ask for is I would like people to send in whatever they want read in our special 100th episode. It's a very circular prompt, but it's... uh, Whatever you've always wanted to tell us. But I can say it quite literally is what it is. And again, those can go to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. We would also love to hear from you on on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. At History Honeys. And who knows, at least one of those venues might have recipes showing up on it soon. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. We really do appreciate those. You can also tell a friend. Maybe friends that you happen to live with. That works. It works. It literally works. We have anecdotal data. You could also tell your enemies that you live with. That's Mm -hmm. also acceptable. You've got to do something to distract them from their devious plans against you. Uh Uh-huh. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.